Hello everyone and welcome to my podcast. In this episode, I will be dissecting the hostile takeover of Afghanistan by the Taliban forces. To do so, I will discuss the history, politics, humanitarian violations, economics and trade. This podcast is using verified facts along with a few opinions and analysis of my own based on my background and experience in economics and international relations. So let's begin by first understanding the economy of Afghanistan. After all, it was indeed involved in some trade with a few select countries prior to the hostile Taliban takeover. Afghanistan is a landlocked least developed country, it's called LDC, located in southern Asia, uh, north and west of Pakistan, east of Iran. Afghanistan's economy was recovering from decades of conflict and had seen a significant growth since 2001. After the Taliban takeover, it is estimated to worsen by contracting due to the supply-side shock and may end up depending on the black market and trade of drugs for years to come. Afghanistan had a narrow export base concentrated in a few markets. The main export items were carpets, rocks and dried fruits. It is questionable if these would continue though. The main export partners included Pakistan, India and Iran. Of these, Iran and Pakistan are likely to continue to accept products from Afghanistan despite the new Taliban takeover. However, there hasn't been an announcement from the Indian government about trade relations with Afghanistan going ahead. Now, petroleum, machinery and other equipment, uh, also food items and base metals, used to be um, one of the main imported items and main import partners for Afghanistan used to be Pakistan again, but also China, Japan, Russia and Iran. So most of these items would continue to be exported to Afghanistan by most of these countries, except maybe Japan, who might rethink their position on trade with the Taliban going ahead, especially with their Quad alliance. Let us now understand the political system in Afghanistan. Afghanistan was a constitutional democracy with the president as the head of the state and the government. The National Assembly had two chambers comprising of the Waleshi Jirga, that is the lower house, and the Mesherano Jirga, that is the upper house. Under the 2004 constitution, elections for the country's president and for the Waleshi Jirga were each held every five years. All of Afghanistan acts as a single electorate to elect the president of Afghanistan, and this centralized rule has also been blamed actually as a factor for a weak political system that was brittle and collapsed under the pressure of the invasive Taliban forces. The last election was a few years ago. The cabinet was made up of the president, two vice presidents, not directly elected but part of the presidential candidate's ticket, and 25 ministers. These ministers were nominated by the president and confirmed by the Waleshi Jirga. So, Waleshi Jirga, like I said, was the lower house. The Waleshi Jirga had 250 representatives directly elected by the provinces. Now, it also had quotas for women, ethnic minorities and people with disabilities. Legally mandated quotas and targets were used to increase women's participation 
in Afghanistan's legislative bodies. All of this is now lost with the Taliban in power. The 2004 constitution had introduced a quota system to ensure that at least one-third representation in the national parliament had women. Subsequent electoral legislation had also introduced quotas for women in provincial councils. In 2004, Hamid Garzai was elected president in the first poll of the post-Taliban era. He was re-elected in August 2009. The first post-Taliban era elections for the Wallace Jirga and provincial councils were also held in September 2005. Following selection of the Mesherano Jirga members, the new National Assembly sat for the first time in December 2005. Elections for the second and third Wallace Jirga took place in 2010 and in 2018. Following very closely contested elections in mid-2014, the two final presidential candidates, Dr. Ghani, was inaugurated as the President of Afghanistan and Dr. Abdullah assumed the role of Chief Executive Officer. After the 2019 presidential elections, Dr. Ghani retained the presidency and Dr. Abdullah became the chairman of the High Council for National Reconciliation. This political system was supported by the NATO, led by the UN-mandated International Security Assistance Force, also called as ISAF or ISAF. Now, this was in Afghanistan from August 2003 to December 2014. I'll call it ISAF for now, okay? So it is International Security Assistance Force, that is NATO-led, based on the UN mandate, okay? So ISAF was tasked with assisting the government of Afghanistan to establish security and stability across the country following the overthrow of the Taliban. And now, in January 2015, ISAF handed over security responsibility to the government of Afghanistan. ISAF was replaced with the NATO-led Resolute Support Mission called RSM. So this RSM, that's the Resolute Support Mission, uh, you know, with the, you know, which is NATO-led, uh, was a non-combat train advice and assist mission focused on building the capacity of the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces. So here we go. We had a replacement of ISAF with a non-combat mission that was focused on building the capacity of the defense security forces and the Afghan security ministries, not training them into actual combat. It won't be a far-fetched assumption that the replacement of the ISAF with the RSM led to the weakening of the military and that actually helped Taliban to take over the country as easy as we have seen um, in the recent time. Well, that being done, Let's now understand the rights of women in Afghanistan. Under the Taliban rule, women had to cover themselves and only leave the house in the company of a male relative. The Taliban also banned girls from attending school and women from working outside the house. They were also banned from voting. Women were subject to cruel punishments for disobeying these rules, including being beaten and flogged and stoned to death 
if found guilty of adultery. Afghanistan had the highest maternal mortality rate in the world. With the fall of the Taliban in 2001, the situation for women and girls vastly improved. Although these gains were partial and they were fragile. And you'll come to know very soon why I say they were partial. Women began to hold positions as ambassadors, uh, ministers, governors and also police and security force members. In 2003, the new government ratified the convention on the elimination of all forms of discrimination against women, which requires states to incorporate gender equality to their domestic law. In 2004, Afghan constitution held that citizens of Afghanistan, men and women, have equal rights and duties before the law. Meanwhile, a 2009 law was introduced to protect women from forced and underage marriage and also against violence. According to Human Rights Watch, the law saw a rise in the reporting, investigation and to a lesser extent conviction of violent crimes against women and girls. Afghanistan had gone from having almost no girls at school to tens of thousands at university. The progress was slow, it was unstable, and that is because it was due to the age-old fear of the Taliban getting in power again and punishing the ones who would go to school. And that's the reason why it was slow and unstable. Despite these efforts, Afghanistan had a long way to go, with almost 3.7 million eligible Afghan children out of school, and 60% of the eligible girls' population out of school as well. So all this work seems now to go down the drain as the actions of the Taliban have not matched their recent words. After this hostile takeover, officially Taliban leaders have said they want to grant women's rights and they want to grant women in accordance with Sharia. Now, they have also asked Western countries not to interfere with the application and their interpretation of Sharia. These words have been met with great skepticism, including by women leaders in Afghanistan. Now, indeed, the Taliban has given every indication that they will reimpose their regressive regime as within days of this announcement. It was seen that women were asked to stay at home again. Now, this is what they were told. They were asked to stay at home for their own protection against the Taliban fighters. Now, the Taliban claims that their fighters uh, do not have training in understanding of how to approach women and they may end up harming the women physically and sexually if, if these women get out of their houses. In July 2021, the United Nations reported the number of women and girls killed and injured in the first six months of the year nearly doubled compared to the same period the year before. The regressive behavior is back, as in the areas that first fell in Taliban, saw the re-emergence of girls being banned from school and their freedom of movement restricted straight away. There have also been reports of forced marriages all over again. While the world focuses on the improvement in women's rights in the post-Taliban era, to the downfall of these rights in the re-emergence, it should be noted that persecutions of minorities had continued on a large scale even during the post-Taliban era. That's right.
Even after the post-Taliban era, there were a lot of human rights violations in Afghanistan, the same Afghanistan that has now been taken over by Taliban again. It was common to see persecutions and also, shockingly, public executions of a few minorities, such as the Baha'i and the Hazara communities. Other minorities, such as the Christians, Sikhs, Buddhists and Hindus, did not receive the level of harsh treatment that the Hazara community had received. More on this later in this podcast. Now it's time to understand how the UN Security Council has reacted to the Taliban taking over Afghanistan. At the Security Council meeting on the situation in Afghanistan, 13 of the 15 ambassadors voted in favor of the resolution, which further demands that Afghanistan not be used as a shelter for terrorism. Permanent members like China and Russia abstained. Surprised? Not really. The U.S. stated that you know the the U.S. stated that they would expect the Taliban to live up to its commitment to facilitate safe passage for Afghans and foreign nationals who want to leave the country. Similarly, France took note of the Taliban statement, which allows Afghans to leave the country at any time. Obviously, this commitment was not upheld, right? As we saw the blast at the Kabul airport within weeks of this statement of the Taliban. The UK emphasized the need to protect gains made over the past two decades, stressing that the rights of women, children and minorities must be safeguarded. Russia was forced to abstain because certain principled concerns, according to them, were not reflected in the draft text, and these actually were concerning ISIL and East Turkestan Islamic movement. Lastly, China stated the need to ease tensions and not to intensify them any further. Let us now have a quick chat about the history of this Taliban. The Taliban, or students in the Pashto language, emerged in the early 1990s in northern Pakistan following the withdrawal of the Soviet troops from Afghanistan. It is believed that the predominantly Pashtun movement first appeared in religious seminaries, mostly paid by you know, the money from Saudi Arabia, which preached a hardline form of Sunni Islam. The promise made by the Taliban in Pashtun areas straddling Pakistan and Afghanistan was to restore peace and security and also to enforce their own austerity version of Sharia or the Islamic law. That is once they were back in power. So from southwestern Afghanistan, the Taliban quickly extended their influence. In September 1995, they captured the province of Herat, bordering Iran, and exactly one year later, they captured the Afghan capital, Kabul, overthrowing the regime of the president, Bar Barhanuddin Rabbani. So he was one of the founding fathers, actually, of the Afghan Mujahideen that resisted the Soviet occupation. So Rabbani was gone. By 1998, the Taliban were in control of almost 90% of Afghanistan. Afghans, weary of the Mujahideen's excesses 
and infighting after the Soviets were driven out generally welcomed the Taliban when they first appeared on the scene. They didn't, the worst was yet to come, isn't it? Their early popularity was largely due to their success in stamping out corruption, curbing lawlessness and making the roads and areas under their control safe for commerce to flourish. Well, obviously none of this lasted. Things looked good at the start. The Taliban also introduced or supported punishments, however, in line with their strict interpretation of Sharia law. And this is you know, one of the reasons where the problems began. Uh, now, these, these punishments were public executions of convicted murderers and adulterators. Uh, it was amputations for those found guilty of theft. Men were required to grow beards and women had to wear the all-covering burqa. The Taliban also banned television. They banned music. They banned cinema. And disapproved of girls aged 10 and over from going to school. They continued to be accused of various human rights and cultural abuses. One notorious example was in 2001. I should say a very tragic example when the Taliban went ahead with the destruction of the famous Bamiyan Buddha statues in central Afghanistan. And this was despite an international outrage. It didn't stop them. Now, Pakistan has repeatedly denied that it was the architect of the Taliban enterprise. But there is little doubt that many Afghans who initially joined the movement were educated in madrasas, which are the religious schools, where? Well, in Pakistan. Pakistan was also one of the three countries, along with Saudi Arabia and the UAE, that's the United Arab Emirates, which recognized the Taliban when they were in power in Afghanistan. It was also the last country to break diplomatic ties with the group. So they did break the diplomatic ties, but they were the last ones. And usually the last one uh, is not necessarily because they want to do so. It's, it could be because of international and uh, commerce based pressure as well. At one point, the Taliban threatened to destabilize Pakistan from areas they controlled in the Northwest. Now, this was after a break, you know, a breakdown of their diplomatic ties. One of the most high profile and internationally condemned of all Pakistani based Taliban attacks took place in October 2012. It was unfortunate when a schoolgirl named and you all know who we are going to talk about Malala, of course, uh, was very unfortunately shot on her way home from the town of Mingora. A major military offensive two years later, following the uh, Peshawar school massacre, greatly reduced the group's influence in Pakistan. At least three key figures of the Pakistani Taliban had been killed in US drone strikes in 2013. This also included the group's leader, Hakimullah Mahshud. Now, Worst things were to come. Things were about to change in September 2001. The attention of the world was drawn to the Taliban in Afghanistan in the wake of the September 11, 2001 World Trade Center attacks 
in New York. The Taliban were accused of providing sanctuary for the prime suspects Osama bin Laden and his Al-Qaeda movement. On October 7, 2001, a US-led military coalition launched attacks in Afghanistan. And by the first week of December, the Taliban regime had collapsed. The group's then leader, Mullah Muhammad Omar, and other senior figures, including Osama bin Laden, evaded capture despite one of the largest manhunts in the world. Many senior Taliban leaders reportedly took refuge. Guess where again? In Pakistan, in the Pakistani city of Quetta, from where they guided the Taliban. It must be noted that Quetta is also notorious for human rights violations and the ongoing persecutions against the Hazara community. But the existence of what was dubbed as the Quetta Shura was denied by Islamabad. Despite even higher number of foreign troops, the Taliban gradually regained and then extended their influence in Afghanistan. This was rendering vast tracts of the country insecure and violence in the country returned to levels not seen since 2001. There were numerous Taliban attacks on Kabul and in September 2012, the group carried out a high-profile raid on NATO's camp. NATO's camp was called the Bastion Base. Hopes of a negotiated peace were raised in 2013 when the Taliban announced plans to open an office in Qatar. But mistrust on all sides remained high and the violence went on. In August 2015, the Taliban admitted they had covered up Mullah Omar's death, reportedly of health problems, in an hospital, guess where, in Pakistan. And this was for more than two years that they had covered up his debt. The following month, a group said it had put aside weeks off in fighting and rallied around a new leader in the form of Mullah Mansour, who had been the deputy of Mullah Omar. At around the same time, the Taliban seized control of a provincial capital for the first time since their defeat in 2001 taking control of the strategically important city of Kunduz. Mullah Mansour was killed in a US drone strike in May 2016, but he was replaced by his deputy, Mavlavi Hibatullah Akhundzada. Akhundzada remained in control of the group, and in the following year, the US-Taliban peace deal of February 2020 which was the culmination of a long spell of direct talks, the Taliban appeared to shift their tactics from complex attacks in cities and on military outposts to a wave of targeted assassinations that terrorized Afghan civilians. Now, who were these targets who were assassinated? These were journalists, judges, peace activists, women in position of power. This suggested that the Taliban had not changed their extremist ideology a bit. In, in fact, they were appearing even more extremists. Despite grave concerns from Afghan officials over the government's vulnerable 
you know, the, the government being vulnerable to the Taliban without international support. The US President Joe Biden announced in April 2021 that all American forces would leave the country by 11th of September 2021. Exactly two decades to the day since the falling of, uh, you know, the, the tragedy of the World Trade Center. Embodied by the withdrawal of the US and other international forces in June, the Taliban already controlled large parts of the country. After 6th of August, their advance accelerated with a new momentum. Despite 20 years of outside support, billions of dollars of funding, an extensive program of training and US air support, the Afghan security forces largely collapsed. Now, I will explain later how they collapsed. It's not just because of face-to-face uh, -face war. It's because of very strategic takeover of locations and choking of Afghan officials done by the Taliban. And guess what? With the help, of, probably with the help of China. There is no proof that China helped them out, but I'm pretty sure it was. Uh, this wouldn't have been possible without the Chinese help. But more on that soon. <laughs> In some areas, they did stand and fight, however. In Lashkargah, Afghan troops were pinned back to key positions as the Taliban attacked repeatedly. Hundreds of commandos were sent in and to restore order, but then the Taliban you know, detonated a massive car bomb outside the police headquarters on 11th of August. And this is when you could say the battle was almost over. While there is denial, like I said, and lack of evidence, this trend that was demonstrated by the Taliban would not be possible without an external funding. It would not be possible without the support of China. Taliban couldn't have done it on their own, and this did not happen overnight. It was clear this would have eventually happened if we had been following the news. Uh, the politicians and the security advisors were very much aware of what is to come in Afghanistan. Bush got US involved in Afghanistan. Obama increased the number of troops in tens of thousands with a total reaching 100,000 in 2010. Actually, a lot of these presidents, you could say Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, all of them had their part to play uh, in what has just happened. So, uh, you know, Bush, Bush actually waged the war. Obama increased the troops. They, like I said, they reached 100,000 in 2010. He also initiated the withdrawal, however, this must be noted, of the troops with only 10,000 troops left in Afghanistan by the time he left office in 2017. Trump also vowed to bring back the troops from Afghanistan. A uh, year later, Trump tasked Zalmay Khalizad, a seasoned Afghan-American diplomat, with leading negotiations with the Taliban, meant to bring the war to an end. The talks mostly excluded Afghanistan's government, driving a wedge between the US and the president, Ashraf Ghani. Meanwhile, the Taliban continued carrying out a series of terror attacks, including in Kabul, which killed scores of civilians. Even after Trump invited the then-canceled peace talks with the group to be held at Camp David in 2019, the discussions continued with Khalil Zad. A deal was struck in February 2020 that set the course for a full 
American withdrawal in exchange for guarantees from the Taliban. It would reduce violence and cut ties to terror groups. Of course, how could the US believe Taliban would live up to their word? Of course they knew it won't. But there wasn't any measures to enforce these promises, were they? No, they weren't. Where, which is when the Pentagon went, uh, and th these words, you know, these promises with the Pentagon, they, as expected, went unfulfilled. Even as US troops began leaving, the Taliban gained strength. And in May 2021, the deadline for pulling out the US troops ultimately was passed on to Trump's successor, Biden. The Trump administration and the Taliban reached an agreement, however, on February 29, 2020, in Doha, Qatar, that is, to pursue peace in Afghanistan. Now, you see how Qatar over here is hosting the Taliban? A condition of the agreement was that the US would work on a plan for the release of combat and political prisoners. As a confidence of building measures with the coordination and approval of the relevant sites. Up to 5,000 prisoners of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, which is not recognized by the United States as a state and is known as the Taliban, and up to 1,000 prisoners of the other side were promised to be released by March 10th, 2020. The Taliban prisoners were held by the Afghan government which was not consulted about the prisoner exchange, according to the Council on Foreign Relations. The prisoners were not released by the targeted date in the agreement, but their release did eventually happen. In March 2020, under immense US pressure, Afghanistan's president Ashraf Ghani said he would issue a decree that laid out the details of the process for releasing prisoners. Pompeo released a statement saying that the State Department would welcome the decree. In July 2020, Shuhail Shaheen, a Taliban spokesperson in Qatar, said the Taliban would release the remaining prisoners of the Kabul administration. By August 2020, the Afghan government had released all but 400 Taliban prisoners, each of whom had been accused of major crimes. Now, the prisoner exchange was eventually completed in early September 2020. The release of prisoners paved the way for the beginning of peace talks between Taliban and the Afghanist, uh, Afghan government. Uh, with this, the two sides actually met on September 12th, 2020 in Doha, Qatar again. And but guess what? They met and in the following months, the talks never made any substantial progress. So now it's time for Joe Biden. Joe Biden comes into power. Over the course of the early months of his presidency, Biden received advice from his national security team, including clear-eyed warnings that withdrawing all troops could lead to an eventual collapse of Afghanistan's government and a takeover by the Taliban. Now, Trump was also warned the same. Both had this idea. Conversely, remaining in the country, now this is where the problem arised, you know, they were aware that the Afghanistan uh, you know, would be taken over by the Taliban, but remaining in the country, if you had your troops left back past the May deadline that was actually promised by Trump uh, with his deal with the, with the Taliban, uh, it was expected that the US troops, if left after May deadline, would face or be exposed to attacks. 
So here, Biden announced that the remaining 2,500 US troops in Afghanistan would come home by September 11th, 2021. You know, like exactly that. The whole idea is 20 years after the terror attacks that promoted the war in the first place. It was clear, Biden said, that the United States objectives had been fulfilled and that there wasn't anything more in this country could do to build Afghanistan into a stable democracy. The timeline eventually accelerated as the Pentagon worked to pull forces out faster. Why would they pull forces out faster? Because they knew about the imminent danger. On 2nd July, the US handed the Bagram airfield, a symbol of US military might to Afghan forces. The Taliban, meanwhile, were taking over provincial capitals, often without any resistance from the Afghan military. On 15th August, the Taliban returned to power in Kabul after Kani fled the country, a collapse that American officials frankly said happened far more quickly than they had anticipated. The US and its allies began a hurried mission to evacuate citizens, and Afghan allies who had assisted during the war efforts feared reprisals by the militants. Biden sent 6,000 US troops back into Afghanistan to secure the Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul to facilitate the airlift. Now, with all this information and all this understanding, let's take a step back and try to understand how did Taliban succeed? How, do, like, how, how, why didn't the Afghan forces fight back? What happened to, uh, you know, the nation building or the military building by the U.S. forces? How did Taliban succeed? Let's let's have a chat about this important aspect. When Taliban began gaining control of parts of Afghanistan, it wasn't any areas they were gaining control over. These were key strategic areas that helped choke the existing US forces as well as the Afghanistan government, both financially and economically. This also includes the trade in opium and heroin. This takes us back to Zaranj. It is not coincidental that the Taliban has focused on border towns. So since these have huge importance economically, which translates into military and political advantage. The Taliban controlled some 10 international crossing points at the start. In addition to the Zaranj, they also have Spin Baldak, a gateway to Pakistan, Islam Quella, the main crossing point to Iran, and Kunduz, which confers control of the routes north to Tajikistan. The importance of these trading cities has been demonstrated by recent history. When the warring factions in Afghanistan stopped receiving military and financial aid, mainly from the Russians and Americans after the Russians withdrew in the late 1980s, control of trade became very important. This included the drug economy, which expanded massively from the early 1990s. This is playing out again. In the 1990s, for example, Zaranj was a Wild West kind of place that grew as an illicit trading hub, drawing on long-standing cross-border connections between the Baluch tribes, who specialized in smuggling fuel, drugs, and people. Similar activities continue there even today. Opium and heroin, derived from the poppy fields of Farah and Helmand provinces, are smuggled across the border alongside the booming business in human trafficking.
Yet, Zaranj has also become a gateway town for legitimate trade, including in fuel, construction materials, consumer goods, and foodstuffs. This is located on a key corridor, corridor connecting Kabul to the Iranian port of Chabahar. The Afghan government has also invested in roads and border infrastructure as a part of a wider effort to cement relations with Iran and decrease its dependence on trade with Pakistan. So these were the areas that the Taliban first took over and took control of. This mix of illicit and legal trade has unlocked inward investment and attracted a growing population from surrounding areas as well as being an important source of tax. Once again, all these were taken over by the Taliban. Across Afghanistan, import duties account for almost half of the Afghan government's domestic revenue. Islam Quella alone generates more than 20 million US dollars. That's almost, um, yeah, 20 million US dollars per month, actually. So taking control of these key crossing points fills the Taliban coffers while denying the government an important source of revenue. This is the choking that started taking place at a time when external funding from international donors was already declining. The Taliban controlled many of the key parts of the economy. They took over the main poppy growing regions as well as markets and trading routes to Pakistan, Iran and Tajikistan. So this enabled the Taliban to systematically tax different points along with the commodity chains. Guess what? They took control of the economy. They took control of imports, exports. They took control of the supply chain. Control of these borders enabled the Taliban to impose economic restrictions on imported goods such as petrol and gas, providing them with further leverage over Kabul. How wasn't Kabul uh, going to give up and fall to the Taliban? This was bound to happen. So with this takeover of trade and of course the government let's now try to understand how the neighbors are reacting in the 19th century the phrase the great game was used to describe competition for power and influence in afghanistan and neighboring central and south asia territories between the british and russian empires neither side prevailed in what became to be known as the graveyard of empires Two centuries later, an American superpower has been reminded of a similar reality. The Afghanistan debacle, in which a 300,000 strong US trained and equipped Afghan army collapsed in hours, serves as a reminder of the limits of American power in the wider Middle East. This is a question whose arc stretches from Morocco in the west to Pakistan in the east from Turkey in the north down the Gulf and across the Horn of Af Africa. Every corner of the Middle East and North Africa will be touched in some way by the failure of the American authority in Afghanistan, or you could say the failure of Afghanistan's authority at their own hands. That this, is, this was the longest war in history as well, in recent history. This comes at a time when China and Russia are already testing American resolve globally. In the region itself, Turkey and Iran are already seeking to fill a vacuum exposed by this American withdrawal. Beijing and Moscow, for their own reasons, have an interest in Afghanistan's future. China, 
that goes beyond just sharing the border, while for Russia it is historical concerns about Afghan extremism infecting its own Muslim populations and those of a nation state in its um, periphery. Recently, China has been cultivating Taliban leaders. Its foreign minister Wang Yi held a well-publicized meeting with the Afghan Taliban's political chief Mullah Abdul Ghani Baradar last month uh, or the month before. And this is where, you know, this is where Pakistan also gets exposed. Pakistan has supported the Taliban both covertly and overtly over the years. Islamabad will see in the American extreme discomfort of opportunities for itself to assume a more significant regional role. This is not to forget Pakistan's close ties with China and its fractious relationship with the United States. In Afghanistan itself, the Taliban may live up to its undertakings that has changed and it will seek to establish consensus rule in a country driven by blood-filled ethnic and tribal divisions. A lot of questions arise from this. A lot of questions and important ones. Will the Al-Qaeda and Islamic State franchises be allowed to re-establish themselves in a Taliban-controlled Afghanistan? Will the Taliban re-emerge as a state sponsor of terrorism? Will it continue to allow Afghanistan to be used as a giant market garden in the opium trade? In other words, will the Taliban change its ways and behave in such a manner that it does not constitute a threat to its neighbors? And of course, the region, more generally speaking. From America's or US perspective, its exit, from, its exit from Afghanistan leaves its attempts to breathe life into something else. Now they can focus more on the nuclear deal with Iran as its main piece of unfinished Middle East business. If we put aside the seemingly untractable Israel-Palestine dispute, and that's where US wants to um, focus as well. There could be attempts to revive the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action called the JCPOA um, and it has been formed as a cornerstone of the Biden administration's efforts to engage more constructively in the Middle East. The progress has been flattering. The election of a new hardline Iranian president further complicates efforts to achieve compromise. So the probably you know, the failure to reactivate the JCPOA that is abandoned by President Donald Trump um, will add a new layer of uncertainty and risk to the Middle East calculations. There will have uh, there have been no more interested parties in development of the neighboring Afghanistan's you know areas than in the leadership of Tehran. Iran's relationship with the Taliban has also been fraught at times. Cooperative, you know, at other times, but mainly fraught. Given the anxiety in Tehran over the mistreatment of Afghanistan's Shia population. So Shia Iran and Sunni fundamentalist Taliban are obviously not natural partners. Further afield, the latest developments in Afghanistan will be capturing the close attention of the Gulf states as well. Qatar has provided a diplomatic heaven for the Taliban during peace talks with the vanquished Qani government. 
This peace initiative under the US auspices is now revealed to have been a foil for the government. Uh, or, you know, it, it has also been a foil for Taliban's ambitious ambitions to return to power in its own right. Saudi Arabia as well. Saudi Arabia will be unsettled by the developments of the past few days because it is not in Riyadh's interest for American authority in the region to be undermined. Yes, interesting. But the Saudis have their own long-standing links with the Taliban as well. In Saudi Arabian foreign policy, Afghanistan is not a zero-sum game. More generally, the hit to the US standing in the region will be worrying for its moderate Arab allies. This includes Egypt and Jordan. For both with their own versions of the Taliban lurking in the shadows, events in Afghanistan are not good news. The Taliban's success in Afghanistan will have implications for the most combustible corner of the Middle East. In both Iraq and parts of Syria, where the US maintains a military presence, the American exit will be unsettling. In Lebanon, for example, Lebanon, uh, which has become to all intents and purposes a failed state, unfortunately, the Afghanistan typical will be adding to the gloom. Israel will be calculating the implications of the setback suffered by its principal ally as well. An increased Middle East instability would not seem to be of any Israel's advantage. In all this, the biggest beneficiary uh, of, of the rise of Taliban is, without a doubt, China. For China, Afghanistan holds economic and strategic value. China have seen an opportunity to invest in the country's mineral sector, which can, which can then be transported back on Chinese financed infrastructure that includes about 60 billion of projects in neighboring Pakistan. US officials have estimated in 2010 that Afghanistan had 1 trillion, 1 trillion of US, US dollars worth of unexplored mineral deposits. And the Afghan government has said they are worth three times as much, almost three trillion US dollars. The, they include vast reserves of lithium, rare earths and copper, basically the materials that are critical to the global green energy transition. But flimsy infrastructure in the landlocked country, along with poor security, have hampered efforts to mine and profit off these reserves. The Taliban takeover comes at a critical time for the battery uh, material supply chain. Producers are looking to invest in more upstream assets to secure lithium supply ahead of what Macquarie has called a perpetual deficit. The US, Japan and Europe have been seeking to cut their dependence on China for rare earths, which are used in items such as permanent magnets, though the moves are expected to take years and require millions of dollars of government support. One major problem for the Taliban is the lack of skilled policymakers, and this is where um, it is possible that China could or already has, along with its ally Pakistan, established bases in Afghanistan providing logistical and economic infrastructural assistance to the Taliban. And for these trillions, trillions of dollars worth of unexplored mineral deposits. This way, like any FDI, China and Pakistan could be beneficiaries of the not just the drug trade, but also the rare earth, lithium and copper trade um, around the world. 
um, with, with the help of China and Pakistan, of course, Taliban could establish themselves as uh, a big trading partner for rest of the world. So it's a different story whether uh, the world accepts trade with Taliban. It's a different story whether uh, Taliban trades openly with the rest of the world or all of this is done through China and through you know, Chinese allies. Uh, this, this will be seen. But regardless of you know whether the, whether the fact whether it's trade with Taliban or China, it, it's safe to assume that any rare earth-related trade, any lithium or copper or poppy, you know, heroin-related trade that comes out of China and Pakistan would be heavily sourced from Afghanistan, which is run by the Taliban now. So with so many volatile variables, it's time to move to another area. Of this conflict. Let us now focus on the Hazara community. And you may wonder why do we focus on Hazara community right now? Because of a very, very important reason. People are under the understanding that women's rights and human rights are at stake the moment the Taliban has taken over. And it's giving a feel. A lot of news media are also uh, providing an understanding to people that things were all good, things were wishy-washy, things were brilliant for women and minority communities in Afghanistan before Taliban took over. This is wrong. This is not true. There have been human rights, massive human rights violations in Afghanistan at the hands of local Afghans, even when Taliban was not in power. And one of the communities who have faced these persecutions are the Hazara community, for which we should know a little bit about their background and about their persecution in the area. Though their exact number is uncertain, Hazaras make up around 9% of the Afghanistan's population. They were once the largest Afghan ethnic group, constituting nearly 67% of the total population of the state, but this was before the 19th century. More than half were massacred in 1893 when their autonomy was lost as a result of political action. The origins of Hazara community are much debated, but the word Hazara literally means thousand in Persian. Uh, but, but given the Hazara's typical physical features, current theory also supports their descent from Mongol soldiers left behind by Genghis Khan in the 13th century. The majority of the Hazaras live in Hazarajat, also called as Hazaristan. It's literally meaning the land of the Hazara, which is situated in the rugged central mountainous core of Afghanistan with an area of approximately 50,000 square kilometers, with others living in the Badakhshan Mountains. So in the aftermath of Kabul's campaign against them in the late 19th century, many Hazaras settled in western Turkestan in Jaujan uh, and also the, uh, the Badghis provinces. Now there is another sect of Hazaras, it's called Ismaili Hazaras. It's a smaller religiously differentiated group. They live in the Hindukush mountains. The most recent two decades of war have driven many Hazaras away from their traditional heartland to live on the fringes of the state in close proximity to Iran and Pakistan. There's also a large cross-border community of Hazaras who make up an influential ethnic group in the Pakistani border city of Quetta. 
Do you remember speaking about Quetta before? Uh, Quetta is where a lot of these Hazaras are persecuted. Hazaras speak a dialect of Dari, which is a Farsi dialect called Hazaragi, and the vast majority follow the Shia sect of Islam. A significant number are also followers of the Ismaili sect, with a very, very tiny number following Sunni Islam. Hazaras are believed to have settled in Afghanistan at at least as far as back the 13th century. You know, like I said, uh, as the theory suggests, they may have uh, their origins from Genghis Khan. The Shia Hazaras are historically the most discriminated, though. You know, the Shia Hazaras are the more discriminated ethnic minority groups. You could probably say the ones, the most discriminated groups in the world, you could say. Uh, and... Uh, in, in this minority group in the state, they have been, uh, you know, they're facing, there has been very little improvement in their situation despite some recent changes. So while President Karzai did appoint six Hazaras to his cabinet, there appears to be no reduction in the discrimination facing the majority of the Hazara population in Afghanistan. Forced to migrate to Kabul in the second half of the 20th century due to persecution, their low social economic status has created a class as well as an ethnic division between them and rest of the, you know, the urban population of Afghanistan. Now, during their resistance in the mid-1980s, Hazaras maintained their own resistance group, some of which actually had ties with Iran. As an ethnic group, Hazaras have always lived on the edge of economic survival in Afghanistan. So this is before the world knew or the term Taliban was even coined. The recent persecution of Hazaras was not instigated by the Taliban. It has been, you know, it has existed for centuries, during which Hazaras have been driven out of their lands. They have been sold as slaves. And they've also been denied access to essential services, otherwise available to the majority of the Afghanistan's population. One of the main factors in Hazara's continued persecution is their Shia religious faith, their distinctive ethnic origins, as well as having separate economic and political historic roots. Historically, the minority Shia, regardless of ethnicity, have faced long-term persecution from the majority Sunni population. From the 1880s onwards, and especially during the reign of Amir Abdul Rahman, which was from 1880 to 1901, they suffered several political, social and economic repression, as jihad was declared by Sunni leaders on all Shias in Afghanistan. As the Pashtun Rahman you know, started to extend his influence from Kabul by force to other parts of the country, the Hazaras were the first ethnic group to revolt against his expansionism. Pashtun tribes were sent to the central highlands to crush the revolt. Thousands of Hazara men were killed, their women and children taken as slaves, and their lands occupied. To strengthen the forces against the Hazara rebellion that followed, Rahman played on the Sunni religious sensibilities and even attracted the Tajiks and Uzbeks, which are both Sunnis, to help the Pashtuns against the Shia Hazaras. Those who survived the initial period of the raids managed to escape to the north, while a significant number fled to the then British India. Apart from Pashtuns, Uzbeks are also thought to have conducted slave raids on the Hazaras in Bamiyan and elsewhere. Rahman's suppression of Hazara ranged from issuing unwarranted taxes to assaults on Hazara women, massacres, looting, 
and pillaging of homes, enslavement of Hazara children, women and men, and replacement of Shia clerics with their Sunni religious counterparts. Hazarajat was also occupied by Rahman in 1893, and it is estimated that 60% of the Hazara population was wiped out by him. The persecution of Hazaras also continued throughout the 19th century and during the monarchs, 1929 onwards, when during the, the process of Pashtunization, Hazaras were made to conceal their identities to obtain state identification. It is suggested that until the 1970s, some Sunni religious teachers preached that the killing of Hazaras was a key to paradise. Economically, Hazarajat was kept underdeveloped with no roads, schools or clinics. The Hazaras have typically voiced their dissent to the policies over discrimination against them since the 1970s through a unified opposition movement. The main Hazara party, the hijab e wahdat the party of unity, that's what it translates to, was established in 1988. In 1992, after the Mujahideen took power, fighting between the various groups broke out. Violent attacks occurred in Kabul between Mujahideen leader Abdul Rasul Sayafs, uh, Itihad-e-Islami and Hijab-e-Wahdat. Some of the other parties joined the fighting as well, intensifying the conflict at one point, leading Hijab-e-Wahdat also to attack President Burhanuddin Rabini's Jaimet-e-Islami positions. So Jamiat under Rabini's chief commander Ahmad Shah Massoud launched a retaliatory artery attacks on uh, Hizb e Wadat, killing many Hazaras. Amnesty International has subsequently reported that the killing of many unarmed civilians and the rape of many Hazara women um, did take place. In February 1993, hundreds of Hazara residents in the Afshar district of West Kabul were massacred by government forces under the direction of Rabani and Masood, and then they joined, you know, by the Etihad a Islami. The fighting saw the utter devastation of large areas of Kabul, particularly those inhabited by the Hazaras. Between 1992 and 1995, Abdul Ali Mazari became the first political leader to speak out at an international level for and on behalf of Hazaras, putting their case to the United Nations and the international community. He unified the Hazara people by bringing together the many sections, forces and classes within the Hazara and Shia society. Mazari also signed an agreement with the Taliban leadership in 1993, but guess what? He was brutally murdered in 1995. In the same year, Hijab Evada joined the new anti-Taliban force. It was known as Shuraye Ali Difa under the leadership of Abdul Rashid Dostum. During this period, schools, including a new girls' school, were reopened in 1996 and the University of Bamiyan was established. After the Taliban seized power in 96, they declared jihad on the Shia Hazaras again and in the years that followed, Hazaras continued to face particularly severe repression and persecution, this time at the hands of the Taliban, including a series of mass killings in northern Afghanistan, where thousands of Hazaras lost their lives and were forced to flee their homes. Consequently, Hazaras formed part of the Northern Alliance forces that opposed the Taliban and took power after the Taliban fell in 2001. But after 2001, it is clear to us, in this podcast what I said before, what had happened, 
And it's really sad to see the state of Afghanistan today. It's not just um, the Afghan, you know, the rights of Afghan women and girls that are at stake. It's terrible that their rights are at stake right now. It's terrible life. It's, it's shocking and unbelievable at the hands uh, with the control of Taliban right now. But we also need to think about the lives of women and children who were enslaved way before Taliban took power at the hands of the local Afghans who were Sunni. So that also needs to be thought about. It is clear that the political mess in Afghanistan is not limited to the rise and fall and the re-rise of Taliban or the decisions by Bush, Obama, Trump and Biden. These are only the tips of the iceberg. It is of utmost importance that the world allows women asylum seekers from Afghanistan on a priority basis with the help of their rescue forces if required of course just the way recently Australia has helped evacuate the women's soccer team in the Afghan women's soccer team from the clutches of the Taliban with vested interests of Pakistan and China especially China and also the Middle East you know um, the quad that includes Australia India Japan and of course, you know, the fluctuating US, the, the Quad needs to work smartly towards smart trade of not only technology, but also that of boosting infrastructure, rare earth minerals and military supply, and also focusing on drugs and agricultural produce. If the Quad gets strong with trade in these areas, it is possible to respond to the threat of China and there's no issue with the threat of China, but the problem here is the threat of China now could include the, you know, empowerment of Taliban, which is what the world doesn't want. So here is my little analysis on this issue. There are a few things to think about. Uh, most of the podcast was based on facts, but of course, like I said, I've added a, a lot of commentary based on my opinions and my um experience of researching in this field and also my field work with regards to the Hazara community. So I hope you enjoyed. Feel free to share your comments and of course some educated uh, non-biased responses and I'll see you in my next podcast. Stay safe until then. Take care.